Morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good? Yeah? Got a few goods. Um, so I, I believe it was a McLean's article. I, I was trying to remember where I read it this week, but I think it was a McLean's article that popped up um, in my news feed. And, uh, but, but anyways, it doesn't really matter where it came from. But it was, uh, they were talking about the state of the Christian church in Canada right now. And they had done a study. And they, they, the article basically, the, and, and the, the way that they tried to get people's attention in the article was that they said by 2040, there's going to be some denominations that are all but dead in Canada. And they cited the Anglicans and the United Church. They said they're, they're, light, they're, they're headed towards, by that date, they're, they're not even going to hardly exist in Canada. And, and I don't, you know, I, you can think various things about some of these studies. I, I don't know sometimes always what to think, but I don't think it's also coincidental that those two uh, denominations are the ones that have most openly, publicly embraced a very non-biblical view on gender and sexuality, and they, they, they're just fully embracing it right now. Um, but, but, you know, the other thing in the article that I found interesting was that they said, by many accounts, the church in Canada is just reeling. Uh, people are leaving churches en masse. Uh, the rise of spirituality that isn't tied to religion or to the church is, is growing exponentially right now. And I, and I came away from it going, man, like, by all accounts, this can look pretty bleak, uh, what they're saying. And, you know, you could ignore it or you can, we can think about why that might be. And then, and then I was thinking about that and I was like, you know, you, you add in right now the constant distraction that we're, we're seeing and we feel is taking hold in, in the church, that there, this, this overload I'll call it of information that's always coming at us. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes I can feel just overwhelming, just the sheer amount of information that's always flowing. And what do you believe? What do you not believe? You know, and we're, and we're getting to the point now for, where for two years, the bulk of the conversations that we're having in the church are around masks, mandates, and vaccines. Two years. And, and all manner of opinions related to this, right? And, and we're not, we're, we're not, we aren't talking about things that you would think the church should be talking about and that, that are going to have a huge impact yet on our lives in the days to come. And I, I want to just get you to think about some of these, that, that things that we're really not talking about, things like the militant LGBTQ agenda that is taking over in our country, in our universities, in all forms of education, how, how many of us are paying attention to the dangers contained in the anti-conversion bill that was just passed recently in the House of Commons that is got super dangerous language in it. They, they talk in that, that bill talks about how religious beliefs are myths. It's written into the bill. How about, how about abortion? We're all but silent right now as the church on abortion. We're not talking about it. There's very few people that will even touch that subject. We're basically ignoring the murder of babies all across our land. What about the rampant rise in use of pornography in society and in the church? 
Studies are alarming. That is a pandemic of epic proportions in its own right. What, what about simply reaching the lost and the hurting in our world? Everywhere around us are people who are deeply wounded. Every, every pastor, I think so at least, I don't have a study on that, but I think that every pastor right now is dealing with the reality. Whatever we say, whatever I say, someone is bound to disagree and sometimes really, really viscerally with what I'm going to say. And they're going to get upset with us. We, the thing is, pastors are starting to talk about this. Pastors don't get questions anymore about theology. I hardly get a question anymore about theology. We're not talking about it. If, if we do, if, if I get a question about theology, and this is what pastors are saying too, it's around masks and vaccines. What the Bible says we have to listen to or what the Bible says we don't have to listen to. Why the Bible says I don't have to wear a mask or why the Bible says I shouldn't take the vaccine or why the Bible says I should take the vaccine. Theology, like, like we're being driven right now into these, th this obsession with competing ideologies. I, I am bound to probably say something this morning, and I, if I do, I, I, yeah, I may. I may say something this morning that, that you, on some level you're going to be like, I don't agree with that. I don't like that, and that upsets me. Because sometimes we say things that are pushing against ideologies that maybe are actually warring for your hearts and minds. The other thing is in all this, do we consider how much of what's happening right now, everything is actually just really demonic? Like, like actually the work of Satan at work, people allowing him to use them for his purposes. to bring about chaos, deception, all manner of things in our world. I, I will say this, folks. The reality of spiritual warfare right now is really, really real. Don't be duped. We don't battle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. That's an ongoing reality. And you know, there's so much noise right now, and I've said this before, but you know whose domain is the kingdom of noise? Satan. That's his domain. In his book, uh, I know I've, I've mentioned this book a few times lately, I, because I just think that it actually is really relevant and has, really has a voice that speaks to what we're facing right now, and that's Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. I, thought, I was thinking about this this week, and I, uh, something he says right at the beginning of the book, I, I was reminded of, but he, he writes, the book is really about the premise that there are three enemies of our soul, ultimately, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he says this, he says, whether consciously or subconsciously, we're quick to dismiss these categories altogether. But then we wonder why we feel an incessant tug of war in our chests that sabotages our peace. And we're mystified by the chaos in our news feeds. Why is the world such a mess? Why am I? Why do I feel so tired, worn down, not in body but in mind? Why do I feel so battered and bruised? Why does every day feel like a battle just to stay faithful to keep following Jesus? 
here's an idea. He says maybe because it is. So I, I, I'm, I keep coming back to my apprenticeship to Jesus. And I know I'm using that language a lot, but that's, I, I'm, I keep coming back to that. How, how am I doing following the way of Jesus? How am I doing in becoming more like him? What, what is potentially hindering that in my life? What, what is competing right now for the affections of my heart? Where, where, where am I prone to live lies? Where am I prone to believe and to live them in my life? And alongside that, you know, thinking kind of this, how do I, how do I live out of Romans 8? Like Romans 8 is just one of those chapters you can live, like I want to live by the Spirit, not by the flesh, right? And I want to I I look in all things, I believe that God is working for my good. You believe that, that he's working for your good in all things, regardless of circumstances, to what? To make you, to conform you into the image of Jesus. Like to make you more like his son. Scripture tells us, really, it, it's simple. It begins and it ends with Jesus. That, that's, it is going to begin and end with Jesus. And when, so when my passions and my desires are being led by other things, that's the warning sign. Paul, danger is ahead. Danger is at your doorstep if you're being led by other things. And it does, it feels like so much is swirling right now. Like, like week in and week out, it's just like a deluge of like stuff swirling. So in the midst of this, I've been reading through the book of Acts to start this year. That's what my Bible plan has been taking me through. It's kind of interesting, Acts and Genesis. It's an interesting pairing this month. But so I've been reading through Acts. And this morning I want to do something, actually it's going to feel a little bit different. It feels a little bit different to me uh, as far as just preaching, but I wanna, I wanna do something here. I wanna just take us through about six chapters of the book at the end of Acts. I'm not, we're not gonna read it all. We don't have time for that. I wish we did, but read it on your own time. Read through the, like the Acts 22 to 28 is where we're gonna go through. And I, I, we're not gonna read it, but I just wanna uh, kinda wanna quickly sum, uh, summary, uh, summarize it for us and then, and then think um, about some things through this. And, and really, what I've been asking myself if I, as I've been going through this, the end of the book of Acts, is what can we learn to see how God is at work in these days? Because I was really struck by the account at the end of the book of Acts. So, quick overview, and, and, and feel free, like, as we go through this, whatever version you have, uh, flip through it. Uh, we're gonna, I'm, I'm just going to very quickly give you a, a brief flyover of it. Um, but so it begins with Paul's in Jerusalem and some opposed to Paul stir up this crowd they end up seizing him they end up beating him they end up because they have a plan to kill him and, and so there's this massive uproar that results in the city as a result of this and Paul, was, he's arrested by the Roman commander because of this. Because he, he probably would have been killed by the mob. So, he, so the Romans arrest him. They get him out of there. And he's, he's ended up, he's taken into the barracks and he's flogged, it says. 
So that's, that's real fun, right? And he's taken before the Jewish leaders, and, this, and it says that the dispute became violent, and so Paul's arrested again. I think the Romans are like, what are we going to do with this? And so then, and then so Paul's, ar- Paul's arrested again. Following night, he's in the barracks, he's in prison, and Jesus, it says, stands before him. <laughs> Jesus stands before him. He says, Paul, take courage. You will testify about me in Rome. And then the Jewish leaders, in the midst of this, they hatched a plan where they wanted to have Paul transferred uh, so that they could set an ambush to kill him. They, they, and so, coincidentally, right, Paul's nephew hears about this plan and lets the Romans know. Of course it's not coincidentally, but the Lord's in this, working through this. And so the Romans, they, they then, they, they guard Paul much more vigorously because of this. He is transferred to Caesarea to Governor Felix for a trial. He, he ends up uh, imprisoning Paul for two years over this. And then he leaves him in prison, actually, in Portius Festus. He's the next governor to succeed him. He comes in, and it says that he leaves him in prison as a favor to the Jews. So Paul's still there. So then Festus now, he then hears the charges against Paul. None which can be proven, it says. And he says, he asks Paul, he says, like, would you be willing to stand trial, to go back to Jerusalem and to stand trial on these charges before the Jewish leaders? And Paul, probably likely concerned that the trial could be manipulated, he's like, no, uh uh-uh. And he, as a Roman citizen, he appeals to Caesar, which he could do. So then King Agrippa enters the picture. Now, I don't know if you know, King Agrippa is actually Herod Agrippa. He was in charge of the temple in Jerusalem at the time, kind of oversaw all that, appointed the high priest. His great-grandfather was Herod, who killed all the toddlers when Jesus was a baby. His, his uh, grandfather had John the Baptist beheaded, and his father was the one who had James, Jesus' disciple, killed. And so now he's, now he's in line, and Paul's before this guy, right? So nice, nice family that this guy comes from. It was after this appearance between, with Festus and Agrippa that they say, they, they, so Paul pleads his case to them or, or gives his case and they say, you know what? He could have been actually set free if he wouldn't have appealed to Caesar. There's nothing, they have no grounds. These are baseless charges. We could have just let him go. But it seems that once you made that appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen, you were bound by that appeal. So, at this point then, Paul's put on a ship and they're, they're with other prisoners and they're transferring them to Rome and they encounter this horrible, these horrible winter storms on the seas and, and end up being saved by God's mercy and they are uh, shipwrecked on the island of Malta. It says then after three months, they're able to leave for Rome and upon arrival, Paul was put then under house arrest in Rome. And, and Acts ends stating that then Paul was under house arrest for another two years. And, and that's where Acts abruptly ends. And New Testament historians, they believe that at some point after that, Paul was martyred and killed in Rome. Probably by Nero. Nero probably had him put to death. Now you could start to wonder and ask, why did all this have to happen? some pretty terrible situations that Paul endured. 
you add up the time, the account takes around probably four and a half years of his life and ends in death. You could surmise that what Paul endured was pretty terrible, pretty unjust. You could second guess his decisions. You could go, why did he appeal to Caesar? He could have been set free. Why didn't he pay the bribe to Felix for his freedom? It says there that Felix kept bringing him to him because he was hoping that Paul would pay him a bribe so that he could gain his freedom. Paul never does it. So you go, did any of this have to happen? And yet, that's not how Paul looked at it. That's not how he responded to what he was experiencing. Paul knew what Jesus had spoken to him. He knew that God was in control. He knew that he believed that Jesus was sovereign. He didn't think that this was happenstance or unknown fate. He, he, he believed that Jesus was on the throne. And, and you see the hand of God in, in, in the whole situation more than once. God protected him from more than one ambush that they was meant to kill him. Didn't happen just once. He was miraculously, God kept the sink from shipping, uh, the, the ship from sinking <laughs> before they, so that they could, they could be rescued on the island of Malta. And, and, for, and he was saved from death. He, on Malta, he was bitten by a snake that the people are like, oh, he's going to die now. And he didn't. And in the midst of this awe, this is what struck me as I was reading through this account, that we see that Paul's constant choice was to see the good, to see the opportunity to live and to speak for Jesus. So I want to I highlight, quickly highlight here, three opportunities that we see how Paul took in this account. I wanna, and I want to make a note too before we go into this. How you see the book of Acts here is actually really important, right? Do you see the book of Acts as simply a historical document that we read? Or is Acts given to us by God to be instructional for your life? And how you live and how you follow the way of Jesus. That we're not just reading history, that this is given, this is the divine word of God that actually says this is how we live. And that will really determine how you read and how you respond to this. So first thing we see is that everything that Paul went through, it brought the opportunity to share the gospel. Again and again, Paul boldly shared of Jesus' resurrection and of following him. Acts 24, 25. I'm just going to quickly kind of give you a bunch of uh, examples here. Paul talked with Felix there. It says about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Acts 25, Festus mentions that Paul spoke to him of Jesus being alive. Acts 26, Paul tells King Agrippa and everyone listening that he prays that they all become like him. He says, except for my chains and that you would all follow Jesus. <laughs> Acts 27, Paul spoke to everyone on the ship of how the God to whom he belonged and to whom he served. Acts 28, upon coming to Rome, he gathered the Jewish leaders and tried to persuade them about Jesus. It's the first thing he does. Acts ends by noting that for two years, Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
At every turn, we see Paul taking the opportunity to share Jesus, share Jesus, share Jesus with whoever would listen. He's wrongfully imprisoned. He's falsely accused again and again. He's misrepresented. He's beaten and flogged. He's accused of mental insanity at one point for his beliefs. Paul was disregarded. He's used as a pawn in a political game. And yet, throughout every single one of those ordeals, Paul continues to see the opportunities to share the good news of Jesus. Second thing we see is it brought the opportunity to model faith amidst fear. Paul warned the officials on that ship. He says, We're not, we shouldn't be sailing uh, through this. This is not going to end well. And they didn't listen to him. They kept going on. And, uh, and they, they caught, when you read it there in Acts 27, like it's, it's a pretty crazy storm they went through. They, they threw the cargo overboard. They lowered the anchor to try and stop being dragged along. That didn't help. They somehow, it says they passed ropes underneath the ship to basically keep the ship holding together. Like the storm, it said, raged to the point it says there, we, we think Luke is, is writing this, right? Where he says, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. They even went without food for 14 days. They were rationing the food they had. I mean, it was, it was desperate measures. Like, I think it's fair to say that fear was a full go on that ship. Like, they, were, they, they thought life was over. And Paul sees it as an opportunity to model faith in God in the midst of all. He tells them, he says, I had a dream. He says, an angel stood before me and promised me that he would reach Rome to stand trial and that all those with him would be saved. And then he says to them, Keep your courage. Paul, Paul even, he even leads those who were following Jesus with him on the ship. He leads them in communion. It's a beautiful picture. And then God miraculously brings them to safety to the island of Malta. And, in, and on Malta then we see another way that God brought opportunity. He brought the opportunity to minister God's love on that island. So, they wind up on the island of Malta, right? In fact, the, the, the soldiers on the ship, they wanted to kill all the prisoners because they said they, they figured they would escape. And so then Paul had the, the commander stop them from doing this. And so then they get onto the island of Malta, like on, on pieces of the ship. <laughs> They're shipwrecked. And there's around a fire, and a viper jumps out of the fire and bites Paul, right? And the people go, oh, well, this is a sure sign that he's a murderer. I guess that in their culture, it was like, he, he's a murderer, and, and this, is this is the judgment of the gods. He's going to die. And then it doesn't happen. He doesn't die, and, and they're wowed by this. So obviously, they, they realize that God is with him. We then read that how the father of the chief official of the island, he takes Paul to see his father, who's really, really sick, and invites Paul to pray for him, and he's instantly healed. And said after that, it says, the rest of the sick came to them on the island and they were all healed. Like you see echoes of Jesus' ministry there on the island of Malta with these people. You know what's really cool actually is that Jess and I, we know someone who actually grew up on the island of Malta, which is just so cool. We actually, someone who lives in Winnipeg now, we're, we're, we're friends with them, and she grew up on the island of Malta. I was like, you grew up on Malta? Like the Malta? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, whoa, that's really cool. But 
Paul just naturally embraces the opportunity to love and to minister to those who are in need. You think about everything Paul's going through. It would be really easy to feel sorry for yourself. To feel, or to feel just really upset, feel like God's abandoned you. Like, where, God, what are you doing? And he didn't respond in any way like that. He sees the opportunity to minister the love of God to the people. So, so I was spending time in these chapters and I, and I was pondering the account here of what Paul experienced. And I, I, was, I was really challenged by his, experience, his responses. And, and so as this was happening Tuesday, we had our, our uh, motor on our furnace go. It started to give us issues and we were wondering, first in the morning it started giving us problems and then by that night it quit. And uh, anyways, in the midst of it, I'd gone to see Dennis at Keating kind of try, because it was weird, it was kind of, it was confusing as to what was happening, so I went and popped in, and, and we visited, and then he said, hey, he said, go home, take some pictures, this is what I want to see, come back, uh, and, and, then I'll, and then we'll talk more. Uh, so, I came back, actually, I went back at lunch, and, and no one was there, I guess he was out, the door was locked, so I'm like, okay, well, I'll come back later, and then my, my afternoon kind of got busy here, and I was tied up with a bunch of stuff. So, I ended up going right near the end of the day, just before five, I popped in there, and I walk in, and Dennis is talking with a customer, and there's another guy there uh, just kind of standing there. And, and as soon as I walk in the door, I can tell they're having a conversation about something. He says, oh, and here's the preacher. And I'm like, oh, this is going to get interesting. <laughs> and I'm like, and the guy looks at me, he's like, oh, you're a preacher. I said, well, I said, I'd like to say that I'm just a follower of Jesus. But I said, yeah. And, and so we start talking, and, and they're talking about, stuff that's swirling. Let's just say that. And this guy's hearing things. Well, this, these people who say they're Christians, they're telling me this. And these people who are Christians are telling me this. And there, and there was this opportunity for Dennis and I to just begin to minister. It was profound. I was like, I, and in the moment, like the Holy Spirit was like, Paul, you, you have an opportunity to just talk about Jesus. So we did. We didn't talk about like this opinion or that opinion. It's like, no, this is what the Bible says about Jesus. This is what Jesus invites me to. This is, this is why I hold to Jesus. This is why I follow Jesus. And I, like, it was a miraculous, amazing conversation. And the one guy is just standing there the whole time, listening with rapt attention. And I could tell, like, God's, God's working. The other guy, God's working he left, and, and I said to Dennis, I'm like, that, that, was, that was the Lord. He's like, yeah. And, and I, I, I was struck how many opportunities there are right now everywhere around us. Not to talk about this opinion, that opinion, what I feel about masks, what I feel about vaccines, what I feel about masks. I, like... That? No, no, no. I, I want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about Jesus. And I know those two guys, God's at work. And I was also now for the rest of the week, I've been led to pray for them. I don't even know their names. God knows. And, I, and I, Yeah, I, I was struck that these are days of opportunity. 
you know, those guys, like, like throughout the conversation, they're hearing all sorts of stuff, right? Like people quoting this Bible verse to tell them that they must do this. People quoting this Bible verse to tell them he must do this. That's what he's telling us. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. that's not Jesus. I, I, that, I don't know what that is. So, you know, in the midst of it, right, it's how does a preacher respond? <laughs> and you just tell them about Jesus. And you try to be real about what he's done in your life. I, I, I simply ended up by saying, I said, all I know right now is for the last two years, they've been brutal at times. And I said, I am holding to Jesus because he's the one who offers me peace. He's the one who offers me joy. And it's real. And it's not based on circumstances. And, you know, it's interesting, right? Because all this was happening as the, this freedom convoy was, was passing by. And Jess had an appointment actually in the city at the end of that after work that day. And so she was late getting home. And, and it was just a, a really full day for us. And I actually had, didn't even know that this freedom convoy was happening. And I, I'm not on social media that much lately. So I didn't even know what was happening. I heard about it after and you know, as I've heard more about it and I've heard details about it, the one thing that struck me is you realize that people are longing for freedom in their lives. They're longing for freedom. I understand that sentiment. Like, like a lot of things just don't make sense right now. Lots of things don't make sense. But this is the thing that, I, that, that the Lord keeps bringing me back to is like, Paul, whatever amount of situational, circumstantial freedom that we have, yeah, we want good government, absolutely. Ultimately, our freedom is not found or experienced in that. That's not where my, what my freedom is dependent on at all. Praise Jesus, it's not. I, I need true freedom. I, I don't need just circumstantial freedom. And, and I, was, I was reminded and just so encouraged by by that encounter with those two guys that day. They don't need to hear my opinion on this or that. They don't need another opinion. They need to encounter Jesus. They need to see Jesus in me. And there's opportunities all around us to share Jesus, not politics, not to get wrapped up in all sorts of movements and ideologies. I'm not insinuating anything by that. Okay, I'm not, I'm not trying to insinuate anything by saying that. I just know that people need Jesus above all things. Nothing is going to be the answer for people than the healing power of Jesus. Everything else is going to lead us in directions that do not give us true freedom. You can be completely free and be totally enslaved. C.S. Lewis, so he has this novel, I think probably some of you might have read it. It's called The Screwtape Letters. It's a fictional account of a senior demon whose name is Screwtape. He's writing to a junior demon, an apprentice called Wormwood. In the, and, and this is what the novel is. And so it's, every chapter is little letters that Screwtape is writing to Wormwood because Wormwood is responsible for bringing about the destruction of a man, a Christian, a new Christian who is, is following Jesus now. And so the, the demon's writing to him how you bring about this downfall of this, this man. 
One of the letters ends with this. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers, sacraments, and charity. He is ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. Got to get, I know some of the language that he's writing, right? He's writing 1940s, might be a little bit like, can probably replace sacraments with spiritual formation. Um, What are we concerned with in our lives? It's one of the questions that I keep coming back to. What holds our affections and our attention? What, like, what really matters to us? And in all this right now, are we in prayer? The biggest weapon that we have, folks, right now in all of what's going on is we have prayer. Prayer is the number one thing that we have to wage spiritual warfare. And I, I, I'm going to say it. We need to pray together, folks. If we want things to move and change and we want God to be glorified and Jesus' name to be exalted and the kingdom to move, the answer is prayer. The answer is prayer. What's, what struck me about these chapters in Acts is how Paul responded so differently in the midst of struggles and uncertainty. Like, so different. He was focused on God's work. He wasn't focused on his circumstantial circumstances and what's happening in situations to him. His heart was for the gospel, to minister and to never waver in his faith to Jesus. So I want to, I wanna, this is where I want to shift this to kind of conclude this morning. And that is, what do we know to be true? Amidst all the stuff right now, all the noise, what do we know to be true as followers of Jesus? First, simple, Jesus is Lord. We know that Jesus is Lord, right? Matthew 17, 5, the Father says, This is my Son whom I love, whom I am well pleased Listen to him, he says. And then Acts 2.36, we read this part of our Thursday small group where we talk about, Peter says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Secondly, we know, what do we know? True life is found in Jesus. So we know Jesus is Lord. We know that true life is found in Jesus. John 20.31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What do we also know to be true? We are called to speak of the hope that we have. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Kind of goes alongside Proverbs 15.1, right? A gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. Fourth thing that we know to be true, our lives are to model the way of Jesus. So we know Jesus is Lord, 
We know that true life is found in Jesus. We are called to speak of the hope that we have and our lives are to model the way of Jesus. Philippians 2, 3 to 5. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then Philippians goes on and talks about how Jesus modeled that. So those are, those are the things, would you agree that those are the things that we know to be true? Jesus is Lord. True life is found in him. We are called to give an answer to the hope that we have. And our lives are to model the way of Jesus. So then that takes me to, why are we here? What, what is our mission? What is your mission in these days? Do you realize that you have a mission? We do. Our mission is really simple too. It's to love God. It's to love people. To follow the way of Jesus. And invite and encourage other people to follow the way of Jesus with us. Would you agree? Love God. Love people. Right? Follow the way of Jesus. And as we're doing that, saying, I want to invite and encourage other people. Hey, let's follow the way of Jesus together. That's the mission. No matter what transpires, no matter what's taking place, I'm really confident that mission doesn't change. I don't know if you caught, I, I, never, I never mentioned a title for today. That was purposeful. That was purposeful. I wanted to wait till the end. It, it was during the time of his house arrest in Rome that we believe Paul wrote several of his letters to the church in those two years. Philippians being one of them. Immersing oneself in the events that led to Paul being in Rome, it sort of adds a depth of perspective to the, those letters. When you kind of start to imagine and start to realize what Paul was experiencing and what he had experienced and then he's writing that to the churches. So I want to I invite you, turn to Philippians 1. I'm not going to have it on the screen. If you, you can either follow along or you can listen. But I, this, so this is something that Paul wrote after all of this. Starting at verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition and not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached 
and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then he says this. I want to just highlight one verse. where he, A few verses later, he says to them, whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens. So the title that I, I came up with for today is to live as Christ. Because I, I believe that that's the conviction that encompassed what we see in Paul at the end of Acts. When he writes that, to live as Christ, to die as gain, he, he was living that constantly before every governor, before every commander, before every centurion, before all the people he was touching. To live is Christ. Whatever happens, whatever happens, he's saying, and he's encouraging and imploring them, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy, worthy of the good news of Jesus. Don't lose focus. These are days of opportunity. Days of opportunity to speak hope and to share the love of Jesus. And I, I'm praying for myself, I'm praying for us, that we would be known and seen standing for that. That that's what we will stand for. So this, this week, three things that we can pray for are really simple tied to today, and that is pray for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus. Pray that God would open up opportunities that you step into a room and boom, it's there. And that in the moment, the Holy Spirit gives you the words to speak and you do it with boldness and you do it with love and you do it in a way that ministers to people. Secondly, pray for opportunities to model faith over fear. That I am in Christ. That Christ is over all things. That I believe that it begins and ends with Christ. And I want to be a model of Jesus. And then thirdly, pray for opportunities to minister God's love to others. That you would have opportunities where you can just, out of the love that we have so extravagantly received from the Father, that we will pour it out and will minister to others. When he calls you to pray, you'll pray. When he calls you to speak love and encouragement and hope, you'll do that. It's the call, folks. Why don't we pray? Father, I'm so grateful for you and the love that you have for us. Reminded of that song, the one who knows me best is the one who loves me the most. You know us the best and you love us the most. And you call us the beloved. 
you are the beloved. Father, we receive your love this morning and I pray that you would pour your love into us extravagantly so that we can simply be conduits of that love and that grace and that mercy to others. Jesus, let it be so in these days. Holy Spirit, would you awaken us with fire and passion and desire for the things of Jesus and the things that glorify the Father. In Jesus' name.